Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlic, and um, this time I thought we'd try something new. It's a new format. Well, unless you've listened to Desert Island Discs at any point in the last 50 years, in which case it's not a new format. But uh, I'm doing something called the Formula E Dream Draft. And um, in this, the idea is that uh, we imagine that Formula E has an expansion um, draft, i.e. has a new team coming in with a new franchise. But you're only allowed to pick people from outside Formula E to be part of that team. And I'm going to ask my guest to pick um, a glamorous figurehead stroke investor figure, similar to DiCaprio at Venturi in that first season of Formula E. I'm going to ask them to pick a team principal, uh, a chief engineer, two uh, race drivers, a test driver, and also a powertrain supplier or a sponsor to stick their name on someone else's powertrain. Um, mm. I, I haven't specified any particular uh, budget that they have to they have to apply to, but uh, the the idea is that you know the, the more that it seems like a realistic name that could be guessable, the the, the more fun it is for everyone. So let me welcome the uh, hot take and content machine that's come up with Most Sport One Hundred and One, the podcast and uh, YouTube series, but also. Um, with um, the book The Kick, uh, which is about the history of MotoGP. Dre Harrison, great to have you on the first episode of this attempt. Pleasure to be here. You put a lot of risk in me being guest number one, <laughs> I must say. But um, I hope that I can deliver. But, oh, yeah, like, you know, um, God, I think very generous to call us a content machine at Motorsport 101, and bless your heart. But, um, yes, um, I am Dre Harrison. You probably know me from Motorsport 101 if you do know me already. Um, yeah, the the alternative, I guess you could say, um, motorsport podcast and website and video series and goodness knows what else, focusing on Formula One, MotoGP, IndyCar, bit of Formula E here and there, bit of sports cars here and there. But uh, yeah, if it's if it's got wheels, chances are at least one one of us on the show likes it. Um, so yeah, well, me guess number one, lucky me. <laughs> And um, I, I think I, I didn't realise until I joined your Discord server just how huge Motorsport 101 is. It, it's um, considering it's 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 um, you know stolidly independent and it and it always has yeah. been and uh, it, it doesn't seem like any of you guys are you know running off to join the race anytime soon. You're doing incredibly well and picking up fans. Do you think that's because you're independent? I've always said, look, you know, there will always be a level of difference between the real big hitters, the auto sports of the world and the races of the world and what they can put out there. And people that I consider ourselves people on the ground floor, you know, guys who are independent, guys that can have full creative control over what they can say and what they can do. I've always found that to be a more authentic way of going about making content and yeah, it's been. It, I've always joked it was a university project I had when I was doing my degree that went way out of hand, uh, and uh, <laughs> that's kind of where it is now. And yeah, couldn't be prouder of it. Just, just, just really, just want to get more ears and eyeballs on it more than anything else. But um, it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love. Um, I love doing it, and I just love being able to put my own spin or put our own spin on the way motorsport is covered and uh we have a lot of fun doing it and uh if that comes off in our work and that allows people to follow along fantastic couldn't ask for better 
Yeah, and I, I think um, I, there, there is something really nice in making content just for pleasure. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, particularly these days, now, now that we've got Substacks and things, there's, there, there's, there's so much uh, you know, um, kind of unspoken pressure to make money from your content and make it into a business model. But when, when you're focusing on what you actually produce and on having fun doing it, and of course you've got that regular crew on your podcasts, um, it, mm. it works much better that way, doesn't it? Look, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then why are you bothering? That's what I've always said to people. Like, if you're gonna go out of your way to do something as 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 balmy as motorsport content for fun, for fun, um, you, you know, you've you've got to have fun doing it. And I, you know, I I love putting set lists together and you know trying to make motorsport a bit more relatable, given it can often be such a closed shop. Um, and yeah, I, like I said, I always try to aim so that our personalities come through in whatever we do. And, um, that's always been the name because if people can relate more to what we do, I think they're more like to, likely to stick on because I've always said motorsport is a game of human stories. Um, I know it's, you know, a lot of engineering and a lot of, you know, technical prowess and know-how more than most sports is, but we're human we get attracted to human stories most and i think that's what the focus of what we do and yeah it's it's it makes it all the more enjoyable when when that comes off like i I take a lot of enjoyment whenever a a new piece is finished a new video is done i'm like yeah we did that and it was fun and yeah i still have that that burning passion for it even god six years on so um yeah it's it's been fun and uh yeah hopefully you know more fun going forward yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I've had Ryan Eric King from your uh, parish on this podcast quite a lot of times, and um, I would class it, I, I would class him as maybe being, you know, a, a very sort of analytical guy. He's constantly uh, bringing up uh, historical references that I know nothing about, and it, it, it makes it, it makes him a great guy to have around because he he's just the one in the room who always knows the fact that someone else needs. Um, maybe the reason I haven't had you on before is uh, no offense, Dre. I find you slightly spicier. I am a bit spicy. I've I've made no bones about that over the years. I. I have had a knack of being a bit acid-tongued. I've always spoken my mind. And, yeah, sometimes that will rub people up the wrong way. Sometimes, you know, it can be perceived as being a bit edgy and whatnot. That's never my intention. I don't intentionally go into something saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be controversial for the sake of it. Um, I'm just very much the sort of heart-on-your-sleeve sort of guy who is, you know, very passionate about what he likes to talk about and that's that's always been my philosophy and yeah it sometimes does step on a few people's toes but um that's who i am that's how i've always been i've always been a bit of a fiery character when it comes to that and it, it often comes off that way in my work but trust me Stu, i'm a, I'm a pussycat really honest um <laughs> I, I trust you um, on that i trust you on that <laughs> And, and you, you, you've also got one of the biggest motorsport merch collections I've ever seen on Twitter. So tell us, tell us what's the latest thing in your motorsport merchandise collection? I've actually, I've actually had to slow it down a little bit in the last couple of years because, like, real talk, it, it was getting out. Of, I'm running out of space in my own bedroom. It's getting a bit ridiculous. I have about, I have like thirty-one two-scale helmets. It's on my on top of my wardrobe. If you've ever watched Motorsport 101 and you see my webcam, you've mm. probably spotted it in the background without realizing. 
Um, I've got about 30 of those. I've got a few, you know, team jackets. I've got a lot of caps. I'd say maybe 30 of those. A lot from the Hamilton collection, a few from other teams, and a, a lot of Mar- Marquez from MotoGP as well. He's one of my mm-hmm. favorites over there um, on two wheels. So it, it's a lot. I've had to try and dial it down over the years because it's gotten a little bit reckless um, <laughs> here and there. I'm... I'm the day job has a lot of disposable income that I'm a bit guilty about, but uh, I may or may not have pre-ordered one, uh, pre-ordered another one-two helmet from Charles Leclerc last week. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm I'm trying my best to curb it, but uh, it, it's it, it it's not a it's not an exact science. Yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> but Charles Leclerc's just got one of the classic uh, helmet designs. I, I feel like. He, he feels like a student of the sport because he's gone for that sort of classic 90s look with the bold colours rather than sort of, you know, modern printing. I'm not saying that that makes his helmet better, but uh, it, it does somehow make it more collectible because it feels like it works well alongside like a, a Francois Severe helmet or a Nicky Lauda helmet or something. Yeah, I mean, look, I I'm not one of these old school thinkers when it comes to things like driver helmets. Like, I was all for Vettel's creativity when he was going through helmet designs like Cotton Candy mm. uh, a few years back. But um, no, the Clubs is very bold this year with the red, um, bright red. I was like, whoa! It's like, if red was fluorescent like a highlighter pen, it would some it would be something <laughs> like Charles Leclerc's helmet. Um, so yeah, no, I completely get what you mean, and I, I look. It's one of the most recognisable things about Formula One drivers in general, because it reminds me a lot of things like the NFL, where if you saw the average NFL player on the street, you probably wouldn't recognise them without their helmet on. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think Formula One can often be quite similar in that. I know it's a it's a lot more of a internal sport on social media, so of course you recognise drivers by the face a bit more, but... When they're in the cars, all the action shots you see, all of them out on track, the helmet's one of the things that's going to jump off the page more than anything else. So if that stands out, you're always going to be in the right direction, even if you might not necessarily like the design. But no, I, I, I like Charles' designs, always have. They're very bold, very much stand out. Like him a lot. <laughs> yeah. Coming back quickly to MotoGP, because um, we, weirdly, considering we've talked so much about F1 and, and we're about to talk about Formula E, uh, the, yeah. the, the thing that you've written a book on is MotoGP. So t- tell us how that came together. And I believe we can still buy the kick, can't we? Yes, yes. Um, you can you can buy it on Amazon. Just search um, the kick in my name, Andre Harrison, in full if you want, um, or just get in touch with me directly. I've still got a few of my wardrobe sitting around just in case. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was literally just a little project. It was something that I wanted. I'd always wanted to do a really massive long form piece on the kick. Now, for those who don't know what I'm talking about exactly, I'll give you a very brief synopsis. It was. The 2015 MotoGP season, and it was probably the most, I would say, okay, imagine Abu Dhabi 2021 in Formula 1, but maybe three times the media coverage pound for pound. Um, that's what I'm talking about with MotoGP in 2015, the infamous Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez moment at Sepang International Circuit um, in 2015, where Rossi may or may not have kicked Mark Marquez off his motorcycle, which pretty much started the most media coverage MotoGP has ever gotten. Um, I'd always wanted to do a really long form, almost like movie piece about it on YouTube years ago, but MotoGP are very, very notoriously stuffy when it comes to copyright. So I don't think I could ever have really pulled it off on video. 
Um, so when the first national lockdown in the UK happened um, in 2020, um, I just got writing, and I, I had I just thought I've always wanted to work on this script. Let's give it a go. And next thing you know, about two weeks later, it was enough for a, for a book. I was like, wow, okay. Um, it's just like a full-on script. Now, I can't take full credit for it. I've got to say I was also partially inspired by a good friend of mine, Josh Wilcock, and his uh, brilliant book on the autobiomelly on Bruno Giacomelli, who, Absolutely. you know, another a, a great story about how an internet bit became a friendship and and st- a study of one man's career. It was fantastic. And I must admit, it, that inspired me to start writing my own version of it. And yeah, the kick is a bit of a, an overall look at the landscape of where MotoGP was at at the time, like how the protagonists we know came about, Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez, Jorge Lorenzo, Casey Stoner, so, you know, the alien era, or the so-called alien era of MotoGP when they had um, arguably their strongest ever field for just raw talent and ability. And then, of course, to how the 2015 season played out, how it got to that point, the flashpoint itself... And um, then the aftermath and how it kind of shaped how MotoGP was looked at forever as a sport. It's it's always been a little bit different um, covering MotoGP since then. So yeah, it's it's it was it was literally just a passion project during lockdown when I wasn't leaving the house. I just channeled all my energy um, into into just that project and it turned out wonderfully in the end i was very proud of it um i think you can still get it on amazon right now if you really want to big shout outs to josh for being an inspiration for it and to and i know you've had her on the show as well Hany mccarney yeah who did the art and the cover work for it as well and was tremendous um couldn't be prouder of it and uh yeah it was it was wonderful so yeah um check that out if you haven't already <laughs> yeah yeah um i i um, I I got the chance to read through the autobiomelly. I think before it was uh, properly released on the internet, because because uh, oh. um, uh, I, I I offered to um, uh, get Josh some help providing a couple of bits of information from someone I knew who um, had spent time in Italy and around motorsport. But uh, I, I mean, yeah. uh, J- Josh uh, did a fantastic job with that, especially considering. I mean, um, he kind of doesn't like me mentioning his age, but he is he is still a young guy, and um, I think. Oh, yeah you know to do that level of research and genuinely to come out with a great piece of writing um you know um fantastic job and um yeah he, he's an inspiration to all of us and um Haley, i think um uh with, with her illustrations on both of your books you know she she really captured the sense of fun that that, that comes from watching motorsports and ju- just the fact that you know it is meant to be entertainment at the end of the day absolutely look Sports are entertainment. Anyone who says otherwise is lying to themselves because ultimately, if your sport is not entertaining, it dies. You need to be captivated. You need to keep up. You need to keep watching every other week, and and, and you know to keep coming back. That's how people. That that's how sports survive. That's how sports live and thrive because it, it, they tell their own stories in that sense. And um, yeah, Haley did a tremendous job with that. I wanted to just capture the overall landscape of what. MotoGP was like on the cover back in that that mid uh, that early to mid two thousands era where it, there was five or six different world class riders that could win every week and that was for me the until maybe now in the last couple of years the best time to be a MotoGP fan because it was it was so it was it was becoming like. 
it was just me putting this. It was Honda versus Yamaha all the time, and this was just when the walls were starting to come down on their dominance on the sport, and other manufacturers and other satellite teams were coming into play. Um, and that's what's led to the sport now being, I think, as good as it's ever been. Um, and I really tried to get that across in the book. This was the start of a real golden era. And yeah, like I said, Haley captured the fun side of that so, so well. And you forget in such a stuffy world that motorsport can often be labelled, and quite rightly so on many occasions, that... Yeah, it absolutely is supposed to be fun. Like, why don't we do, why don't we make it fun more often? Like that that should be something that all series should be thriving for, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, and I, I one of the things that constantly attracts me to Formula E is the fact that uh, you know with, with their presentation and with their coverage, okay, it's more corporate than it was, but they 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 still try and make it a form of motorsport that isn't so entrenched and isn't always you know in hoc to traditions like F1, probably, you could say that is, for example. No, I, 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 look, I've noticed that about Formula E. Like, they're, like, they have an incredibly likable roster of drivers. I've said this from day one. Um, you know, the Sandbirds of the world, the Mitch Evans, Jev, you know. I, one of the jokes I made on, like, when I was talking about Mexico City just last last week on Motorsport 101 was that Andre Lotter is turn and post to the camera was straight out of a Bond movie. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it just made me laugh. Like, and, and I mean that in a, in a good way, I promise. Um, but, you know, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, it is as all, it has always been a fun series to watch. There's a lot of fun personalities and, and credit to the teams and their social media people as well. They do a very, very good job of bringing out the best of the personalities, the drivers, and, and the series as a whole. It really is. a tr- like, Ultimately, I've always said that these paddocks are like a traveling circus. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, use it. Use that power to get across that your series is a bit more lighthearted and maybe doesn't take itself as seriously. That There's always room for that in, in most places. So, yeah, Formula E is very, very good at that. I've always tipped my hat to them in that regard, at least. Absolutely. So, uh, a, f- a few reasons why I wanted you on for this uh, for for this first episode of this uh, content experiment. Uh, one is uh, because you know about all um, well, uh, many other kinds of motorsports, and I think you can you can bring an in- in- interesting angle to who would work well in Formula E, and maybe even who would be a bit hilarious in Formula E as well. I think that would be good. And also, you know about expansion drafts because because I because I know you're deeply into your American sports and and. Um, oh, yeah and and how drafts work and um i i imagine you've probably sat through a few expansion drafts in the past to see um to to see who the new team in the nfl or the nba picks for example um how, do you do you have any any experiences of uh you know do you find this kind of thing fun do you enjoy sitting up and watching drafts in america I am a nerd. I am a huge nerd. So the answer to that is inevitably yes. One of my favorite written pieces I did on Motorsport 101 last year was reshaping the Formula 1 grid via a draft format. Um, so for those guys who don't, you know, may not be so keen on American sports, I'll get a, a quick synopsis. Basically, it would be, imagine if all, imagine if I've just bought Formula 1, I know, a, a terrifying thought, and I've bought every driver out of their current contracts, Everybody is now a free agent. They all get put in a pot. Whoever was last in the championship last year gets first pick on driver, basically. And they go reverse championship order up and back down the grid to 
basically rebuild the teams. And I thought that was a fun concept to try out last year. And, and what, what would I do if I was a team principal and I was evaluating, you know, talent? Because I had, you know, obviously because in 2020, Williams were the bottom team in the championship. That meant Williams had the first pick for last year's draft. And I was like, well, who do you take? And then I thought, well, if you're going for best driver available, you're probably taking Lewis Hamilton. And, you know, understandably so. He just won his seventh championship. Um, but you've also got to consider that Lewis Hamilton is, you know, was going into his age 36 season. So how, lo- how long are you going to have him in your car for? Maybe one or two years, and then you've got an empty hole in your team again. So I was looking at, well, who's good and who will get you value? Who will be in your car or in your seat for a long time, maybe 10 to 15 years, which is why my first pick was George Russell, because Russell already knows the Williams outfit. He's driven for them before already. He's still only, I think, 22 he was at the time, and that he could be your franchise elite-level driver if he gets better for 10 to 15 years. So that was the logic I was thinking. This hmm. is exa- this is exactly what Claire Williams said at the time. I I, I know, of hmm. course, she would say that because she was his team principal. But she actually said, uh, in in her opinion, at that time when she was still in charge, you know, George Russell was already um, world champion material, and she quite wanted to see to to see the days again when Williams could hold on to a world champion for his whole career. Um, of course, you know that didn't even happen in the Frank Williams days. But uh, it, it would have been nice to have seen oh. that, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, look. It's it's not Claire's fault. Williams was obviously not the juggernaut that it was, obviously, in the 90s and, you know, early 2000s to a degree as well, where, yeah, they ha- ultimately, you've got to have the best car. If you've got the best car, that gives you all the leverage to basically bring in whoever you want. If you've got a top three team, you're going to have, you know, a good amount of leverage over guys in the field and thinking, well, who do you want? for your team when you're at the bottom end of the field that's always going to be a big ask it was going to be an even bigger ask because george russell was obviously he's a part of the mercedes family was part of their driver academy and we all saw towards the end of you know 2020 and obviously 2021 season that okay will he, like you know george russell probably is the real deal here if there was any question marks about his career to date so it was always going to be a big ask for claire but yeah like I'm a huge fan of draft formats and things like that. I've, I've, I've saw in the NHL, the Seattle franchise coming in. I was, I stayed up and I watched that, um, seeing who they would take from the other leagues. I've watched the draft for the hundred over in cricket as well. Um, a, um, a couple of the years ago, seeing who they would go for with their price brackets as well. So I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd for data and little things like that. I'm, I'm always intrigued to see what strategies are at play, what game plans are at play. And um, how, you know, people want to build their rosters or build their team. So Formula One's obviously a bit more limited for that because you've only got, you know, two drivers at the end of the day. And that's ultimately what people care about most. They care most about the, the fleshy bit behind the wheel, probably a bit more than the engineering side of it. But, um, yeah, like anything that I think that can mix up F1, I think is always certainly intriguing and worth a look. And I'm a big fan of... Of, of sporting drafts and strategy and all things like that. So I've always been intrigued by that. Fantastic. All right, Dre. Well, we'll, we'll get right onto your choices. And I know Motorsport 101's got a Patreon, so I'll plug that. So um, I, I guess uh, you, you'd like to mention some of the extra stuff they can get if they pay for your Patreon? 
Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm that. If you want to check this out, there's all the details on our website, motorsport101.com. Our Patreon specifically is patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, there are obviously there's multiple levels there, including a copy of the kick, if, you, if you're intrigued by how I described it earlier. Um, the, the $15 a month tier includes a copy of, of the kick. I'll send it, I'll sign it, and I'll send it anywhere in the world. I've still got a few editors' copies in my wardrobe, if need be. But there's also little other perks in there, like early access to shows. Um, access to our Discord server. It's a place. It's a pretty closed shop. It's a very tiny community, but uh, we also record all of our shows and have many conversations about sports and goodness knows what else in there as well. It's a, it's a fun crowd. I do highly recommend it. Excellent. Um, that's at any level if you back as a Patreon at all. Um, but there's also things like early access to shows as well, exclusive content as well um, on there. So just check it out if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Thanks for checking it out. All right. Um, so let's get on with it then. Formula E Dream Draft. Uh, Dre Harrison, you are uh, in charge of the uh, team and you, you're in charge of recruitment for the team. So... The first category is uh, the investor stroke glamorous figurehead. Now, I say glamorous, that refers to uh, men or women in this case, because I count Leonardo DiCaprio, for example, um, being nominally in charge of Venturi uh, for the first couple of seasons of Formula E as being a glamorous signing. So we're, oh, we're, looking, we're looking for someone um, of, um, of a really great stature to bring the team to magazine covers, to bring the team to uh, um, content maybe outside of the sport and to, you know, grow the sport, uh, but do it in a fun way. So who have you gone for, for your glamorous investor figure? Now, I, I'm a f- anyone who knows me well knows I'm a feud sucker for a f- certain Formula One driver. And I was very tempted to say Sebastian Vettel here, being he's Ooh. become almost like Formula One's dad in that he's become this just all-round likable, you know, LGBT plus ambassador as well as environmentalist, you know. Saving the bees will apparently give you clear skin and a new lease of life, even at 34, 35 years old. <laughs> so I was very tempted, given former E's environmental message, to go Sebastian Vettel here. But one name did just beat him out for the post, and I thought, if I'm going to have some fun with this thing, you know... I'm going to go for the guy who already has a very high social standing amongst the world. Um, he definitely became a bit of a national hero in the last couple of years. I'm going to say mm. Marcus Rashford. Ooh, I think great this, choice. I think this would be a fantastic investor and figurehead for the sport. Yeah, you know what? You know he's he's done. He obviously done fantastic work. Obviously in the UK with fair share raising a lot of you know, money even charity towards feeding children that you know are that are below the poverty line in the UK. Um why not expand a bit further and get and become an environmentalist, you know? Do do your bit for do your bit for the planet. Get involved in motorsport. Those two have always had sexy tie-ins. I mean how many footballers and cricketers were at the Abu Dhabi finale last year? I saw Chris Gale, Liam Livingston, Ronaldo down there, you know, it was it's They've always been closely intertwined, and I think as an all-round, you know, it, it would get like serious PR points. And I, I know Marcus is a, is an ambassador for Burberry, so he, he he would certainly look great on the grid as well as a young team owner, a young black team owner. That would always go over well. Um, yeah, Marcus Rashford. Why not? Why Absolutely. not? Yeah, that, so yeah, as a glamorous investor, I'm a, I'm thinking a bit out of left field, but I think that would that would go down really well. 
Um, I'll, I'll ask about Rashford a bit more in a moment, but you, you mentioned Chris Gale. Um, of course, uh, he, he was, uh, I, I think we can say, one of the great West Indian cricketers, certainly of the last 20 years, couldn't we? Could, could we say that? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, look, uh, he was a great test cricketer in his own right, even before what he's now probably most remembered for now, which is the rise of the T20 format. Hmm. Um even before then, I think he had over 7,000 test runs at an average of 40 plus. I mean, that's pretty great numbers, no matter which way you slice it. And then when T20 became, you know, the super you know, phenomenon format that's changed the way we look at the game forever, he was, I'd argue, the first real megastar of that format. And being at the top of the order, always coming out first and having just this outrageous amount of power to hit sixes, you know, it, it, it was hugely captivating. So, with, with yeah, all that I, said, I, I, though, Dre, with all that said, I'm glad you didn't choose Chris Gale because can you imagine him answering questions in an interview with Nikki Shields or Amanda Busey? It, it, it could be it could be a, a, a metaphorical car crash, couldn't it? It would. It, it, there's no doubt about it. He's a he, he already got in hot water in Australia when he was being over flirty with mm-hmm. with the presenters to the point where he wasn't invited back to the big bash in Australia because he was making a pass at one of one of the um, interviews who just so happened to be female. I can't remember her name, unfortunately. Mm. But um, I do remember that story. So, yeah, I, uh, don't get me wrong. I was tempted, but I, I was like, <laughs> it would be a PR disaster. He would absolutely put his foot in it somewhere <laughs> and end up pissing a lot of people off. It would be, um, a, lot, it would be a lot of fun, though. But uh, So, but Marcus Rashford, um, he would probably be the youngest race team principal anywhere, wouldn't he? Uh, do, do you think that would be a disadvantage to him at all? Probably. I mean, he, let's be honest, he's not a motorsport guy, um, and he's only 24 years old. So, um, you know, he'd be, he'd be a baby by relative motorsport terms. Um, you know, most guys are team principals and team owners are guys that are into their 40s and beyond. So, you know, he wouldn't he'd be, he'd be a, certainly be a bit of a fast tracking compared to how most guys end up getting there when it comes to management and whatnot. But he can hire someone else to handle all of that, so it's he can, fine. He can. You know? And um, yeah, th- that's that's ex- that's exactly what I mean. Look, um, for for all that Zach Brown is uh, incredibly knowledgeable about motorsport and uh, see, seems to know what he's talking about when he's interviewed, th- there's there's no way that he knows deeply all about all of his McLaren race teams. He he obviously enjoys the ride, enjoys going along to watch them, and you know, um, and they they always is always accountable but like he doesn't need to know everything does he no, absolutely not i mean that's that's the whole point you, you've got the ability to be able to hire people to fill in the blanks i don't think zach brown i mean look, look at more zach brown absolutely knows his stuff when it comes to when it comes to racing and race cars and i know he's he's genuinely a huge fan of you know the game itself and beyond but that's the whole point you can hire people to fill in the blanks where you're short on these sorts of areas and that's what marcus could do i'm sure he could if he was if he was in the same scenario so uh, it, yeah you're, i think you're right in theory that it would be a disadvantage for him but there's that's nothing a bit of money and a bit of scouting can't fix <laughs> well, <laughs> like football. W- where i think rashford would be a good fit for this as well is that 
Um, if, if you look at his campaign on school meals, he, he actually was able to absorb the figures and was able to, you know, um, yeah. uh, uh, he was able to absorb the rebuttals so that uh, conservative politicians. Oh, by the way, conservative politicians w- would be so annoyed that Marcus Rashford and Formula E were joined together. I, I think it's it's worth doing wow, yeah. purely for the troll value. But um, so so conservative politicians couldn't touch him because he already had the rebuttals. I, I think that someone who's able to absorb information that quickly and is is clearly smart enough to solve problems in his head he, he's perfect for running a team oh hell yeah like, like, like that's a very good point that not even i considered it yeah when he was starting his fair share campaign and he put his open letters out and calling out the government where it, and in, in the uk where it was it's not like the guy was an idiot and was coming from a completely baseless position. He had done his research. He'd done his homework. He'd spoken to people that had been in the trenches and was able to amass data. And, he, and again, he's he's not stupid. I mean, a lot of people thought he was because he's a footballer. You know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the UK just assume that if you can kick a ball about it, it means you weren't very good at school or anything like that, which is completely untrue. Um, yes, it may have been a distraction a little bit because obviously your true calling was playing sports for a living at that sort of level, but it doesn't mean these guys are dumb by any stretch of the imagination. Like, Marcus had absolutely done his research, he'd done his homework, he was able to back up what he was saying with facts and, and statistics, and I think a lot of people just assumed he was he was stupid, but when he was going out of his way to make a difference, I think he was taken very, very seriously down the road in the end because... It got to the point where he changed national policy um, multiple times um, in the middle of that first lockdown period. In, in, a, in a world where our footballers were, off, were at the same time criticised for not doing enough during the pandemic, he was able to completely reverse and flip that narrative on his head. Um, that's the sort of guy who could happily run a team all day long. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing him on, well, let's let's say Top Gear, Grand Tour, Graham Norton talking about Formula E as well. That I think that would be perfect for the sport. Oh hell yeah! Like just any mainstream media attention you can get is almost always a good thing, and you know a little bit of legitimacy um, certainly doesn't hurt. And you know he's he's one of the most recognisable footballers in the country now, so that would most certainly help. But particularly if he could politely uh, answer back to Chris ha- Chris Harris on Top Gear as well, that would be fun. Oh, that would be very fun. That would be very fun indeed. <laughs> All right, so we, so we've got we've got our investor stroke figurehead type figure, Marcus Rashford. Um, so below him, we need a team principal, someone to do the everyday management of the team, a sort of uh, Jerome D'Ambrosio figure who um, looks looks good in a tight button down shirt, but also um, knows his way around the team and um, has a good rapport with the engineers and drivers. Um, so, um, so someone who we can cut to in the pits with um, maybe slamming his headphones on the desk when when there's a problem for the car um or um but but then you know seconds later brushing brushing the hair back and talking to jack nichols or vernon about uh, what went on so we, we need someone um man or woman who is unflappable and uh, we, we need someone who uh gets on well with drivers and understands how to speak their language so who have we gone for for this position um, I went for a bit of an emotional pick here because of how I grew up in motorsport, but I went for Ross Braun. 
Oh, good choice. Um, I mean, Ross Braun now going into his, I don't know exactly how old he is. He's going into his 70s. Do you think he could, do you think he'd still like to do the job? I hope so. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's not the he's not the old, he's not the youngest of dudes. He's 67 years old now. Oh, so, okay. yeah, I, mean, I think there is always a risk you'll just end up going fishing instead, which I completely understand for a man who he's, he's literally retirement age um, in the UK. But look, this was an emotional pick. I completely understand this. But when I first got into motorsport, it was through Ferrari growing up in the early 2000s and. It was the dream team. Me, grow, like it, it was. I was a huge Schumacher fan growing up. It was. It was the first car I ever had on my wall, and I've always thought that Ross Braun was the guy that was the glue that kept the team together. His relationship, his bond with Michael and Rubens and Eddie Irvine to a degree in the past. He was the middleman between him and John Tott. He made all the big decisions in that team, um, but also the work behind the scenes and you know, what turned that Ferrari set up into a dynasty of the early 2000s. I mean, they won six consecutive constructors championships between 99 and 05, five driver's titles in a row with Michael as well. And, and Rubens was a fantastic you know, but I don't want to necessarily say number two driver because I think we we look down on that term a little bit. I mean, Rubens had double digit wins in his own right. He was a, he had a fantastic career, no matter which way you slice it. Um, but me growing up, I looked at Ross as the ultimate example of a team principal. Very rarely would you ever see him lose his rag. Very rarely. Did he ever step out of line or anything along those lines or ever hear about dissension within Ferrari? It was a well-oiled, systematic machine uh, of, of dominance and winning, and it put Ferrari back on the map. Um, you know, I, I think the reason why Ferrari is the global juggernaut it is now in F1 is mostly down to that era, and I think Ross was the spearhead of that, and that's the sort of guy I'd want to build my team around. And um, arguably, he's a team principal cut from the cloth of how team principals used to be because uh, he came from the design and engineering ranks, whereas I, I think TPs a lot more these days are taken from the ex-driver ranks. And I'm not sure it's to uh, to the advantage of team principals to be ex-drivers because I think if you look at Alan McNish, Susie Wolf, and so on, and maybe even mm. D'Ambrosio, um, they, they, they've all made decisions based on what they would do as drivers from time to time whereas I, I think having that detachment of always having been an engineer maybe helps someone like Ross do you think I think there's I think there's something to that certainly I mean it's hard to say because obviously you know it I, I would like to see a bit more proof of concept regarding that but I think there's certainly something to what you're saying I think with the rise of guys like Jerome D'Ambrosio, like you say, who was former drivers, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're going to absolutely lean on their own experience first and foremost and what they would do in a situation. It reminds me a lot of what we saw in F1 last year at Sochi where, you know, Lando Norris was fighting for the win and then I'd argue the miscommunication between him and his team cost Lando a real chance at his first win in Formula 1. Mm. And, you know, Lando being the driver that he is, saw the glory of the first win with a handful of laps to go and went for it. I can, I can completely understand why he would. Like I said, it's a very human sport at its core, and ultimately it's the brain that makes the decision rather than the car, you know? So, But at the same time, it was the communication between Hamilton and his team and the team that has the data, that has the weather analysis, that 
has the cameras of, of the track and where it's getting wetter and the proof of concept with Valtteri further on as well. It was that communication, I'd argue, got Hamilton win number 100. And, and, and it's it's that contrast, you know, that argument between having the information and not and then being the driver that... The, the, the glory calls, I like to call it sometimes, where it's like, you know, you know it's not the most logical decision in the world, but, you know, you, you go with your gut because that's what, you know, that's what got you to where you were in your career. I think there's something to that, certainly. I think maybe, again, Ross being a more of an engineer, more being, being more of a numbers guy on the inside probably probably helps. And because I don't, I, there's always going to be emotion in sport, but sometimes you've got to think with your head over your heart. And I think Braun, I think, is more of a head thinker. And that's, that could probably help in some scenarios, certainly. Yeah, and um, I, incidentally, I, 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 I remember back when Lucas Degrassi did his famous pit lane move uh, in London last year. The thing I thought back to was uh, Ross Braun advising Michael Schumacher to win the British Grand Prix in the pits because then he wouldn't have to serve a time penalty. Uh, and I, I just thought that they they were both incredibly clever, incredibly infuriating rules loopholes that that um, you know someone had just found by. By, by by literally problem solving uh, on the hop, and uh, Ross Braun was and is the master of doing that, isn't he? Oh hell yeah! I mean, yeah, like you look at that, and again, I've I've watched that clip a hundred times. It's hilarious. You're like, you like, it's just it's it's utterly pure gamesmanship at its finest, and you know, it's what we would probably call shit house by today's standards, but it, it works, and that's the point. You know, if I've, it's a, it's a boring old football phrase. You play to the whistle at the end of the day, and if, if there's a loophole in the rules, who are you not to exploit it? Uh, like it's, it's it's up to the sport to manage its rule, but not you at the end of the day. And yeah, if you can find clever workarounds and use them to your advantage, why not? You know, it's let's be real here. We're all here to win at the end of the day. We're not all here just to do it for the sake of it. You do it because you want to win the prize money, the, the fame, the prestige, all of that. Um, you've got to do what, what you can. And yeah, Braun was one step ahead of many of these other team principals out there. And those moments like Silverstone were proof of that. And that's a valuable guy to have in your, in your back pocket when you know what you're doing. <laughs> All right, so we've got Marcus Rashford in um, in, um, in overall charge of the Formula E team with Ross Braun as the power behind the throne. Sounds good so far. Now, the next uh, pick with, that we need to decide on is a is a chief engineer. This has to be someone, uh, dare I say it, a bit nuggety. Uh, some someone who um, um, is capable of. Um, um, of having conversations during the race and um, obviously sounding uh, sounding suitably gravelly and um, urgent over team radio, but who is also occasionally capable of um, doing the odd interview and also of sitting through two-hour engineering meetings uh, without, <laughs> get, without, without getting bored by the prospect. So uh, you've already said you haven't picked Sebastian Vettel, who is the man who um, is capable of sitting through three-hour engineering meetings, apparently, oh, yeah. without getting bored <laughs> with it. But uh, So who is your choice for chief engineer of this team? I went for something from MotoGP on this one because I thought, well, if I'm going to be here as the variety pick, let me mix it up a little bit here. I went for something from MotoGP. I went for Luigi Dalinia, who is the current boss of, of, over at Ducati. 
Right. Um, as a technical engineer. Now, this may need a little bit of explaining because I know MotoGP isn't the most popular of series out there compared to the F1s of the world and whatnot. But I've always admired Luigi Deligna because when he took over and started developing Ducati, they were nowhere as a manufacturer. They were... This was around 2014 sort of time where... Oh, they were horrible, yeah. Yeah, they were horrible. They had just... They chewed up and spat out, like, many world-class riders. Casey Stoner had eventually quit and left them in by 2010 and had won another world title at Honda before promptly retiring at 27, which was a real shock. Um, They had signed a who's who of world-class riders. You know, they had Loris Caparossi. They brought in Nicky Hayden at one point. The big one was obviously Valentino Rossi. They had him in 2011, you know, having just been in the mix for titles at Yamaha and, again, didn't win a race on a Ducati. And they'd spent years trying to figure out how their Desmond Desi, their main MotoGP bike, had been so slow as a sport had become, again, basically Honda versus Yamaha at the top, basically, for years and years and years. Ducati... Winning even maybe one race a year was still almost seen like it was a surprise win at this point. But when he took over and 2015 came around and he had st- he'd completely revamped the design of the bike. Smaller, more nimble, but still had that incredible engine that was incredibly powerful. You could start to see them turn it round. And then and they, they used, like, Delinia used him and the combination of some great up-and-coming talent. Andre Rianoni was one of them, but the big one that people will probably know is Andre Davizioso, who was really the first rider that really pushed Mark Marquez in a title fight sort of scenario where Marquez had burst onto the scene and destroyed everybody. He had taken their lunch money, basically, when he debuted in the sport. But the first guy that really started threatening him one-on-one on, on in, in, in duels and in over the course of his was Andre Davizioso. And that was partly down, at least, to Delinia working on Ducati and turning them into a juggernaut of a bike where it didn't need to be so physically challenging to ride. It was smaller, it was lighter, but it still had unbelievable top-end grunt. I mean, there's rumours now that that bike's got over 320 horsepower, which... For a 160-kilo bike, <laughs> you can do the math. It's over 2,000 brake horsepower per tonne. Um, it's it, it's a missile. They, they broke the all-time speed record last year in MotoGP in Qatar um, by going 225 miles an hour, um, which is just incredible um, for, you know, incredibly powerful, incredibly fast. And Delinia was the man who pretty much turned Ducati around to the point where they are now the best bike in MotoGP. They've won the last two um, Constructors' Championships. I know in MotoGP, Constructors' titles are not quite seen in the same way that I think Formula 1 looks at their Constructors' title, but the proof of the pudding's in the eating. They like Ducati has now become the juggernaut factory um, in MotoGP now. They've got Four teams, all on their bikes. They have a fleet of really talented riders on them. Like, um, you know, you've now got um, Francesco Bagnaia and Jack Miller and Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco. You can all stem that rebuild back to Delinia and the work he's done with Ducati over the last half decade. So for me, he's burned a couple of bridges by being dead set in his ways, but it's hard not to argue that it hasn't worked. 
So I would be a bit risky here, but I think the Lin would be the way to go here. Okay, so uh, what's his first name again? Luigi Deligna. Ah, yeah. Let's call him Gigi. Right, so uh, Luigi Deligna, and um, I, I'm actually, uh, I thought you'd delve into MotoGP for this choice, but when I was guessing, I, I, I kind of thought you'd go for Valentino Rossi's long-term sidekick, Jerry Burgess, but obviously not. That's... It's funny, you read my mind on this one. I was considering Jeremy Burgess myself. Like Burgess was Valentino Rossi's true chief for almost a decade and a half. They they had won seven world titles together um, through when he first debuted with Honda, when he switched to Yamaha in 2003. Um, or 2004, I should say. He switched to Yamaha in 04. And yeah, like he was the person that was able to really get the best out of Valentino is, and then, you know, was able to make the bike work for him on such a superhuman level where Rossi was just destroying people in MotoGP. It took a good half decade to, to for the sport to, just to catch up to him, really, in terms of rider talent and how bikes and other manufacturers had to develop themselves to keep up. And even when the, the field did catch up, Rossi would go on and win a couple more world titles just to make absolutely sure of it. Um, it it's interesting because, you know, Rossi and Burgess ended up splitting up by the time that Rossi had gone back to Yamaha. Um, because I, never did, I, remember, I never did understand why. It's interesting because, like, around... Uh, Rossi did two years at Ducati. He, he goes back to Yamaha in 2013. It's a very different team to the one that he walked away from in 2010. In 2010, he broke his leg uh, halfway through the season at Mugello, and he missed four rounds, and he wasn't the same guy when he came back. Coming back from a broken leg is incredibly difficult in MotoGP. His teammate was Jorge Lorenzo, and Lorenzo had just started to really come into his own as a rider. He completely dominated the rest of 2010, and one of the greatest seasons ever put together. Lin Jarvis, who was running Yamaha at the time, basically told Valentino, be a number two rider and take a pay cut or leave, basically. And Rossi said, all right, I'll give Ducati a go then. And that didn't work out. So Rossi had basically come back to Yamaha with his tail between his legs. And he struggled the first year back at Yamaha. He was not the same rider. Well, so we thought he wasn't the same rider. Lorenzo had become, you know, the team leader at Yamaha. He'd won two world titles with them in 2010 and 2012 it was it was lorenzo's team by all accounts but all the yamaha guys were just so hyped up to have rossi back and he was struggling in 2013 i think with lorenzo being lorenzo and that marquez had just come along and basically rewritten the book of how to ride a moto gp bike basically I think Rossi and Jeremy Burgess break it up. I think Rossi saw that as his last roll of the dice. Basically, like, well, okay, I'm 35 years old now. You know, I'm already kind of breaking new ground as a GP rider. I need to do something different here, basically. And I think him getting rid of Jeremy Burgess as, as, um, as his crew chief was the last roll of the dice. And it actually works, because... Rossi was was better in 2014 and 15, and when now the kit came about, that's how he was a title contender again. So, again, it's weird, but it worked. Um, and yeah, Burgess is someone I definitely did consider as you know one of the all-time great crew chiefs in GP history. That was certainly a name I was considering. So you kind of read my mind on that one. 
But, but uh, Lu- Luigi Deligno of D- Ducati, um, I, I didn't know him before you mentioned him, but I like the idea just because uh, the Ducati bikes for me are always the most attractive bikes on the grid. Um, oh. I, I actually remember back to when, when Rossi was there. I, I, I know that it was a terrible time for him uh, personally and professionally, but uh, that bright yellow helmet on that bright red bike uh, just looked spectacular. And I think that's partly down to uh, the way that the Ducati looked. Oh, definitely. It's it's always been a gorgeous bike. Ducati have always made gorgeous bikes. I mean, as a bike fan, first and foremost, I mean, people don't even know this. I was a bike fan before I was a Formula One fan. I grew up with like the 1999 Suzuki is one of my all time favorite bikes that Kenny Roberts Jr. was riding back in the day. So um, I was always a bike guy first, funnily enough. So but I always as as I got older, did like the. I played like Ducati World on the PlayStation One for about 150 hours. Um, it's this really <laughs> obscure Ducati video game, completely based around the brand itself, and I fell in love with Ducati that way. That's how I became a bike fan, just by playing that game. And the headline bike was Carl Fogarty's Ducati 996. He won the World Superbike Championship on. So, like. I, I couldn't help myself. I had to have something Ducati in this setup. I I, I, think I gave it a good old think, but uh, I had to have something from the Duke brand on there, and that's the one that jumped off the page to me was to take the linea. Yeah, slight slight digression in that the, the time when I was massively into MotoGP was the 2007 and 2008 seasons, and the, the reason for that was because James Toseland joined MotoGP. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, I, I know that he wasn't terribly successful and ne- ne- neither were Tech 3 uh, at that time. But uh, I, I just I just really liked the idea of this, uh, you know, c- clearly um, he was a guy with male model looks. Let's get get that out of the way. But I oh, mean, yeah. when, when he spoke, he was thoroughly Yorkshire. And yet he was he was also this cultured guy who'd lived in and spoke it spoke fluent Italian. And I, I just really liked the cut of his jib because he seemed to belie so many stereotypes and also fantastic rider as well. Oh yeah, I I I, I met James Tozen back in the brief time the BT Sport had picked up the rights and had their own MotoGP studio show. So I was I was very lucky enough to meet James Tozen years ago. He is absolutely a lovely guy and a great pundit. He was my he, he was doing commentary on Moto Two on on BT Sport a few years ago, and he was really really good. He, he'd done his homework. He'd studied people's riding styles. He had the numbers in his head. Just a very intelligent, you know, passionate, but, you know, well-spoken guy. And just, yeah, an all-round fantastic um, rider. Again, it's a shame that uh, he was another one of that, like, bedpost of World Superbikes imports that just didn't work out for many reasons. Mostly, I think, because just satellites just didn't get the backing that they do now in MotoGP. Because back then, they were, they were truly customer teams in that... You know, they were not getting, you know, first port of call from factories and, and whatnot. So the Tech 3 team was probably never going to win compared to the factory team, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I completely get yes, I completely get the the uh, the liking of, of, of Toes. And he's a great guy and a, a great pundit. And he was a great rider, too. It's just a shame that it never worked out for him when MotoGP was the premier biking series because he was a superb world superbike rider, always was um and whatnot so yeah completely get the attraction definitely 
I don't actually understand how someone can be so good looking and also talented and also smart because he, he, was, also, he, he was also a classically trained pianist and also a front man in a rock band uh, and also a good singer. <laughs> he got to marry Katie Melior. It's all just not fair, is it? I mean, is it? Is it, is it <laughs> all of it's just unfair. Um, yeah, it's like, how are you this good looking? How are you fantastic on a motorcycle? How are you classically trained? It, it just doesn't make any sense. It's It's... Um, that is a man that started the role of life with double sixes and, uh, you know, fair play to him for doing so. But, uh, yeah, it's all, it's, it's all a little bit unfair, but, uh, he's brilliant in that sense. Definitely. All right. So, um, we've, we've got our, um, uh, chief engineer, that's Luigi Di Ligna, and let's move on to the first race driver. So, uh, this choice, uh, obviously typically a Formula E first driver would be someone with a bit of Formula E experience, but we can't do that because, uh, well, or maybe we can. So it's got to be someone from outside of Formula E currently so that we're not poaching from a current team. So you can pick a driver with XFE experience or you can just go totally gonzo and choose somebody else from a different form of motorsport and see, see how they handle it. So who have you gone for for your lead race driver for this team? I've gone for an F1 driver. Um, I've gone for a good steady pair of hands. My second pick is a bit is a bit more risky, and I'll get to that in a minute. But my first pick, I'm going to go for, I think, one of the more under underrated F1 drivers of recent history. I'm going to go for Jensen Button. Hmm. I like yeah. I, I I like the idea, um, and I feel that if he'd gone the Formula E route, he would have had much more fun than he ultimately did in Extreme E as well. I think so too. I think look, I've got no beef with Extreme E, but that's not Jensen's strength. We all know that he's a track guy. He always has been a track guy. He's not a rally Ray driver. That was a big old leap for someone like him, but. I think Jensen is just an all-round great car driver. I've always said that about him. And, you know, Formula One, obviously, he won that world title in 09 with Braun, and that was a fantastic story. I'd actually argue his 2011 season was better when he was at McLaren, where um, he completely outpointed Lewis Hamilton for the first time in his career. That He'd been really properly challenged in his F1 career to that point, and... Just as a guy that could win races, could challenge for championships, fantastic changeable conditions, wet weather driver as well. One of the best of, of, of the last, I think, 10, 20 years and those sorts of changeable, you know, murky sort of conditions where it can go wet to dry. And I just think he's a great all-rounder. If you're better than Jensen Button in terms of a race car driver, you're probably really, really good. You're probably one of the better F1 drivers of all time quite frankly. Um, but I think just as an all-round safe pair of hands, easy to work with, um, you know, likable personality, I think could be a dab hand at it. I, I think Jensen Button would be a great start to build a team around as a, as a race car driver. Yeah, I, I used to think Jensen Button was underrated, but I'm I'm not sure he is now. I think he's just rated. I I think it's just that pe people know his strengths. People know, well, people know how many wins in F1 he's he's had, and uh, of of course there was that world title, which, you know, although we say drivers with one F1 world title, you know, generally it's lucky lucky or it's a fluke. Um, you know, QV Keki Rosberg, but in this mm. case, um, it I. I and and also in Keke Rosberg's son's case as well, but you know, but with with both Nico Rosberg and Jensen Button, you can say, 
an awful lot of talent and application went into it, and they were probably due a title at some point, if not for the season when they actually won it. Yeah, like I said, I think I think Jensen's button, I think Button's title came a bit out of nowhere because Button was uh, by the time we got to 09, he was like this veteran figure of F1 who'd been in the sport like a good decade now and it had never really come together for him uh, a BAR Honda when he was racing for them and he was he was very loyal to the team and the factory and whatnot they'd given him everything and he gave everything he could back but he was never ever really oh Button's challenging for a championship I actually thought at the time people I think were starting to look at him a bit like how they did David Coulthard as a guy that was good but never you know, good enough to really be a title contender until 09 happened, and then that caught everybody by surprise. And I think because of the technical elements of how that season broke out with the double diffuser, I think a lot of people just looked at Jensen quite cynically because of that championship, which, you know, is not fair at all, but that's that's how we are when it comes to assessing drivers. I think I said I think I think his 2011 season at McLaren was all the proof that the guy really was world class all along, as far as I was concerned. So, um, yeah, I I think you're right, and I think I think people have I think history's been kinder to JB because I think he's stuck around the sport. He's been a broadcaster now since then, and we always look a bit more fondly on people after they've gone in terms of you know whether it be retirement, sometimes sadly livelihood in the case of like an Ayrton Senna for example mm. um, in general but I, I think you're right I think we're in the same sort of thinking that yeah he was underrated but I think people have looked back and realised he was, he was a damn good racing driver like I said if you're a world t- if you're a world champion with 15 wins under your belt you've done well you've done very well for your F1 career that's already top five percent easily you know so um there's not many that are better than jb on an all-time list i'd say probably maybe only 20 25 people maybe ever so that and the the fact that i said his his x factor and his traits that make that made jensen who he was as a driver i've always really liked um and i'd like he'd be a very good all-round driver um whether it be as a team leader or in case, you know, because he's been a team player before in situations at McLaren, um, I think he'd be a fine number two for someone else. And if my number two pick ends up being, I think number two might have a bit more ultimate potential than him, which I'll get to in a minute. But mm-hmm. if he is, I think Jensen would have no problem being the number two guy as well. I think he's just a very versatile and just good personality and good all-round head to have in a racing team. <laughs> Definitely, and uh, he's he's not someone who tries to um, you know use use the media to uh, to to state his case. I mean, he, he's he's always been always been someone who's let his uh, let his driving do the talking from that from that extent. But um, the the thing that attracts me to Jensen Button as a driver choice is that um, Formula E is fairly unique in the way that uh, it, it's 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 got to be a standard interview question when you're recruiting drivers. Um, how how do you feel about uh, managing a stop start race? You know, full full of safety car periods, full of uh, freak weather, full of freak freak incidents, and uh, um, how do you feel un- under that kind of pressure? Well. 
Jensen Button's already shown us that he can do that. So I, mm. I would I would say Montreal 2011. Um, and I, I know that, you know, Charlie Eccleshare, the football writer from The Athletic, got a lot of brickbats for saying that Harry Kane's performance against Man City was the greatest all-time Premier League performance. But Montreal Oof. 2011 for, for me is is potentially in the top five greatest all-time modern era F1 performances. I, I'm not talking about Fangio 58, but like in terms of modern era, um, one of the greatest, certainly. W- would you agree with that? Oh, do I, how bitter a Sebastian Vettel fan do I want to be about this? No, I'm, no, I'm joking. <laughs> look, no, look, it, it, it was a... Like, even I, as a Vettel fan, had to tip my hat to that one from JB. That was... Sometimes it's a bit like when Lionel Messi scored a hat trick against Batiste and the Batiste fans give him a stand innovation and just say, look, man, I get to tell my grandkids about this performance. It's one of those sorts of days. Even I had to tip my hat and go, my man went through the pit six times and won a Grand Prix. He came from the back of the field twice over to win that. That's it was remarkable. It was a minefield of a race. It was a Hollywood movie in that it was nearly four hours long. You know, it's it, it it got wet, it got super wet, it got undrivably wet, but then it got dry again towards the end, and Button was just a constant threat. He was he would just find a way to just ch- generate speed and confidence, and the way he won that race, and you know, yeah, he basically bullied Vettel into making a final lap mistake, um, essentially, and you know that. I was watching that race and I was watching the last two laps and I was thinking, Jensen's going to get him here. He's going to get it. You just knew. You knew it was coming. And it, and then, oh, it it stung when he went, when Vettel went wide at the, at the, at the chicane and Button comes through for the win. I was partly gutted, but I was also like, you know what? Fair play that man. Because that was, that was phenomenal. That was, that's one of those performances that will go down forever. Like it's one of those ones where you, ha- if you watched it, you know how special that was because that wasn't a race; it was a Hollywood movie, and uh, the, the hero ended up getting the happy ending in that one. And yeah, Jensen was superb. As as well, all the marquee performances of modern F one, that one's right up there. I think I think you're right on that one. Mm. The only thing that might stand in Jensen's way from getting this drive, and it's 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 something that he could probably get past by being nice in the interview and explaining it, but it's something oddly that we tend to level at Lewis Hamilton more, which is that he's got so many side interests now. Um, I think the re- I think the reason why he went for Extreme E was because he felt that with the with the five race calendar he could easily dovetail it with you know being a coach builder with Radford with uh, being an, being an ambassador for Williams and and that he could go off and have his fun and you know also bring up his kid and um, also spend time with his wife and um, I I think that his personal life is a big part of what makes him Jensen Button these days. So would he be willing to go back to a 16 race calendar and devote himself to the gym and, you know, devote himself to the simulator? Is that, is that something he would do at this stage? It's a good question. It's a good point. Um, I I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely a valid concern to have. Um, Certainly. I mean, yeah, JB, I, I think you're right. I think he's just as well known off the track now for, for the way he is as a broadcaster, as a dad now as well. He's a very personal driver. We all know about his dad, John, and how big a role he played in his life and the emotions behind that as well. I mean, very much a heart-in-your-sleeve driver's driver in that sense. I mean, yeah, going back to a full-time schedule would probably be hard. The blessing for him is that 
I guess formulary have quite a lot of gaps in their schedule, which would probably help. I mean, we're in we're in one right now. I mean, we're not racing again until April. We're recording this at the end of February. Sure. Um, they're not racing in Rome again until the middle of April. So, you know, I guess I don't think it would be too bad. I think I think there is absolutely something to that. Um, an example I've always used is Jonathan Ray. I think as part of the reason why he's not in MotoGP is because World Superbike schedule is so much lighter. By comparison, they've only got. 11 or 12 weekends for the entire year. MotoGP this year has 21. It's their biggest ever season. Um, so, you know, it's it, scheduling the way his life is now, given he's in his, you know, early 40s. Yeah, I think, I, think that, I think that could be a valid concern. I'd like to think if he had taken something like that on, he'd take it with the utmost professionalism. But it's a, he's a safety valve. I've got options. Um, so, you know, I, I hope... It wouldn't have to come down to that. <laughs> well, well, let's listen to some of those options then. So your your second driver, this isn't necessarily a number two driver. It, it's quite often in the history of Formula E been someone who's outpaced the lead. Uh, just look at Jake Dennis at BMW Andretti last season, for example. Um, and uh, so we're, we're looking for someone with a bit of potential uh, and maybe someone who's a bit of a maverick like Dennis himself is. So right. who have you gone gone to? Who have you gone to for your number two or your second driver in the race team? My second driver is Joseph Newgarden out of IndyCar. Ooh. And, um, yeah, I, I think this is this is one that's going to split a few people up. But I've been a huge fan of Joseph Newgarden ever since I first started watching IndyCar, and that was about six years ago now. Um, I think Newgarden is one of the most complete all-round packages I've seen in IndyCar since watching him. I think he's a superb driver. He can win on all three major disciplines that IndyCar have with ovals as well as um, street tracks and road courses. Um, it's amazing that he's never really had a big 500 run. That's the one thing that's really kind of gone against Newgarden in his career over in IndyCar, but he has won the series title twice, and he was runner-up this past year to Alex Pillow. So he's pretty much pound for pound the top two driver in that series now, probably behind Dixon, and that's about it. Um, but I think New Garden's potential is sky high, uh, even though he's now 31. And, you know, that's a little old, you know, in, in racing standards these days. It's, it's quickly becoming a younger man's game very quickly. But I just think as an as an all round racing driver, I think that New Garden deserves this platform where he can really show off what he can do. An IndyCar is a niche within a niche, unfortunately. I wish it was more popular. I wish more people watched it. But um, I think as an as an as a guy with upside, as a guy that could you know be a competitive teammate for someone like Jensen, jo- Joseph Newgarden is the one that leaped out, uh, leaped off the page to me um, for that one as, as the second seat. I I agree with you. I I think he'd be a perfect choice and. Um... Um, I was talking with Elizabeth Blackstock on um, the the episode of the podcast that you'll probably hear before this one. And uh, Mm. um, we talked a lot about IndyCar drivers because uh, she spends a lot of time in the paddock there. And um, I I mentioned Newgarden um, as someone who um, 
didn't necessarily feel bitter, but uh, uh, felt that maybe um, if if the world were fairer, if the motorsport world were um, more conducive to crossovers, that perhaps an F1 team might have spoken to him. Um, that was something that he kind of alluded to in an interview recently when he said, you know, uh, if you want to drive in the European system, you have to you have to start in the European system, I think was what he said. Um, mm. And... I, I would love to see him do an Oliver Askew and jump over to Formula E and adapt the equipment really quickly. I think it's something he could do as well. I think when you've got that much ability, um, generally adapting to new equipment isn't a problem. Uh, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, I, I, I completely agree. I think he's got so much ability that it wouldn't matter. I think he'd figure it out. I think... Oh, don't get me wrong. Oliver Askew had a pretty solid start to his Formula E career when he when he started off in uh in Saudi Arabia. I thought he had a pretty darn solid opening weekend. Bit more, bit more to form, I think, in Mexico City, but that race was a bit chaotic anyway. Um, but no, I think Joseph could adapt easily. I think he's I think he's always come a long a long way. I think he's just taken to IndyCar like a duck to water, and you know he's gotten better and better as the years have gone by and. When Penske snagged him up, he was a title contender immediately, and then would go on to win the title after Pagano did in, in I think, in 2017. So, yeah, I think New Garden would would be a superb fit to come over. And again, he knows the European system because he came up through the European system before going to America. So he before going back, so he knows a lot about you know Europe in that sense. He'd have a a bit of an advantage over some other imports, for instance. So. Yeah, why not? I don't see any reason why New Garden could do it. Uh, the the only the only thing that maybe stands in your way um, uh, in terms of getting him as as the chief recruiter here is that uh, Roger Penske has a bit of a reputation for hoarding his drivers until they're in their mid forties. See, see, Castro Neves. Do you think you're going to be able to get him uh, fifteen years early? <laughs> that would be a challenge. I do admit, um, Roger. Roger likes his guys, and when I first got into IndyCar, he had he had an all-star team of just ridiculous talent. It's like if you were constructing an NBA roster of IndyCar drivers, you would just take Team Penske as your blueprint and then just go home, because he had Pagano, Power, Castroneves, and Montoya, and when Helio was a little bit over the hill and it was you know, moved him over to the sports car program, you bring in Joseph Newgarden, who was like the number one younger driver on the board, pretty much straight away. And, you know, he, Roger has a fantastic eye for talent. He always has. And, you know, I had my doubts about Scott McLaughlin coming over. And I'm, we, we sit here on February 27th off the back of his first ever IndyCar win. And he was superb in that race. I, I wasn't ever fully convinced on McLaughlin. I'll be the first guy to admit it. But it's working it's you know he has a he has a great eye for it he really does and yeah it would be difficult it would probably require a lot of money to buy him out but uh you know fair shares raised a lot of money you know um by 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 feeding hungry kids by raising that money for charity so i'm sure we can slip uh, roger a few checks and just say hey listen you mind giving us joseph you know you, you can you can go get like renus vk or something you'll be fine you know I don't think there's going to be a huge drop-off. You know, you'll, you'll figure it out. That's the plan, anyway. 
And uh, quite quite often when we talk about American drivers or uh, American um, uh, soccer players um, in, in the Premier League, um, the, the focus from reporters is always on the marketability. Now, I, I get it. You know, they, they, they have good teeth. They have good hair. They talk well. But it, it and, and they probably come with American sponsorship. But it, it shouldn't be about that, should it? Um, w- would this be a hire purely on driving ability or would you want to bring a few sponsors with him as well? I think it's I think it's the all round package. I think he's a brilliant driver, but also I think he's incredibly marketable. He's again, he's a chiselled, you know, incredibly handsome guy. If you've ever listened to interviews, he's extremely charismatic. Um, he gets it. Like he's got a brilliant YouTube series, and um, you know, as well, he's 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 streamed. He's got good association with esports and video games. He's got sponsorships. Um, you know, he's one of those guys that's like one of the vocal you know, talkative leaders of the series from a marketing standpoint, because he's incredibly marketable and he's a really cool guy. He's incredibly likable. And um, yeah, like even for my interactions with him, he's a great guy. He's very, very easy to like. And yeah, it's a bonus as far as I've looked. If he could be the most boring, miserable guy in the world, he'd still be getting the gig because he's a fantastic racing driver. The fact that he doesn't take himself too seriously. The fact he is charismatic and likable, that's a bonus as far as I'm concerned. I think he'd be a great figurehead guy for the team. And I think he'd fit Formula E from that standpoint remarkably well. I think he'd be brilliant at it. And he's also hilarious. He's got such such a great sense of humour. I, I remember in 2020 when yeah. when uh, when when he did his Twitter thread of um, thing, things he was doing while waiting for the Daytona 500 to start, and that yeah. had me in stitches. I I couldn't believe he had to apologise for that later on. By the way, oh yeah, I, again I can't believe he did because I think people took it as uh, I think people took it as a shot when it shouldn't have done, um, but because. You know, people get a bit sensitive sometimes on certain things on the internet. I think I think it was more than obvious. New Garden, it was just you having a bit of fun. You know, waiting for a, a rain delayed race. You know, it, yeah, that's that's NASCAR for you sometimes. And I think a, I think a few NASCAR fans took that to heart. But even so, I, I, I completely agree. I thought it was hilarious. The, the man is very very good at what he does, and. Yeah, I think he's like I think it's a tremendous fit for that paddock and, and what he could do over there. Certainly, agreed. All right, so uh, Joseph Newgarden alongside Jensen Button in the race team. Now we need somebody else uh, to be the test driver. Now Formula E doesn't have that many test sessions. In fact, there's only one official week of group testing in Valencia at the start of start of the season, or rather, um, at the start of pre-season. But uh, you do need someone to come in for the young driver test in Marrakesh uh, or wherever it's going to be this season and uh, potentially for for a couple of uh, sponsors gigs as well. And um, this needs to be someone who is capable of uh, doing a lot of simulator driving, um, but also not getting bored at the prospects. So someone with an even temper, someone who's going to provide you good data, but also potentially someone who's going to get um, the non-Formula E fans excited at who might be coming up into the team in the future and particularly when you've got Jensen Button who I think is 41 now and Joseph Newgarden who's 31 could mm. be someone to step into their race seats potentially so who have you gone for as the team's test driver? I was tempted to go Nico Hulkenberg here I thought Hulkenberg was a, was a very safe pair of hands 
Um, he's obviously he's test driver now for Aston Martin as as, as we go along. He's yeah, I love the fact he was able to come in with racing points at short notice to still be very good in F1, like on literally hours notice in some instances, and he was still very fast indeed. But I wanted to go someone younger, just in case, um, and you know, someone to get excited about in the future. I did think about that as well, so I went for Oscar Piastri. Mm. I was I was thinking you might pick Piastri at some point just because he's he's such an exciting future talent somewhere. Um, now, unfortunately, maybe for him, he's uh, he he's he's in the Alpine stable, and that mm. inevitably means um, a um, a career of simulated driver driving followed by an LMP two future. But I, I'm kind of half joking. I, I hope he gets the F one gig at some point. But uh, yeah, he he's definitely got a fantastic career somewhere coming up, hasn't he? I think so. I mean, he is he he's one of those S tier prospects you get from Formula Two once every three or four years, where you go, yeah, that guy's the future. We've been spoilt for that in Formula Two the last half decade with Russell and Norris and Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen. Well, we are in as a side note, I think we're in a golden age. For younger F1 talent, you know, I've never seen anything like it where there's, you know, five or six superb talents under age 25. That's just ridiculous by Formula One standards. And there was always going to be a bottleneck effect that would come with that, where it would just become really, really hard to stand out as almost a direct result of the fact, well, there's only 20 seats to go around and there's a there's a ton of really good talent that's covering half these seats as, as it is. So there was always going to be someone big who would miss out. And I think the fact that we had Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin at Haas last year was like the final straw in that sense, because there's just nowhere for these dudes to go. And Oscar Piastri was superb in Formula 2. He was superb in Formula 3 the year prior. He won three straight junior titles um, on, on the way up. And he should really have been driving for Alpine. Look, I, I get it. I get why they kept their lineup. Like, like Fernando Alonso was really good for a, for an age 40 guy last year in F1. And Esteban Ocon was, is pretty much his equal. They were both very, very good. So there was never, there was never going to be an opening at Alpine because they've already had the bad reputation of not promoting from within their own academy. They've had good talent come through it in the last half decade. But Piastri is really, really talented. You don't get... 19 20 year olds like him that are that good in the juniors all of a sudden like that's not an overnight thing um so for him to be that good um and again to miss out on f1 is a, is a crying shame but he'd certainly have an opportunity in the near future with my team certainly or somewhere else in real life because he's a supreme talent i hope it isn't just again i'm completely in the same camp as you i hope it isn't just sports cars down the road because there's nothing for him to do in single seat racing that would be a tremendous waste of talent but he is special no doubt about that and um the the, the other thing is that you, you mentioned that amazing pool of talent that formula two's had over the last uh well the, pr probably since uh stuffel van dorn's dom dominant season but yeah. why why is that is it a sign that formula two is actually working or is it a just is it just a sign that we've had particularly good drivers is it just is it just luck basically i think it's a bit of both i think i mean 
like I said before, I think we've been a bit spoiled. I think since maybe the class of 2016, where we can go back to maybe like Pierre Gasly, and when he came up with Gio, and then you had, you know, Verstappen come in out of nowhere from Formula 3. He needed one year of single-seat racing before he cracked F1 at 17. And then he's winning races before his 19th birthday. I mean, you, that's a unicorn. You know, you, you just don't get that anymore. And... Yeah, like, what we're seeing right now, I think it's just like a freakish sort of timeline. It's, I think it's a combination of we've had almost too much junior talent for the amount of seats that Formula 1 has has got, while at the same time, the junior model, I think, is just... I mean, this is coming off the back of the Jamie Chadwick news in the W Series. I think the whole junior ladder is just a little bit unsustainable at the moment with the amount of money that's involved to climb the ladder. Um, and, you know, coming off the back of a global pandemic where people are not going to be getting big sponsor money like they, like they were in, in previous years. And we've seen good drivers fall by the wayside because they, they literally just cannot generate the funds to stick around there's no career for you being a junior level driver for three or four years there's no money in it for you so you've really got to generate the money and be really good to win a formula two title in basically two seasons because anything more than that your stock plummets like and you will probably be lo- like looked upon like a jolian palmer where you're like oh you're a four-year veteran in formula two you're probably not that good um and you know you're kind of doomed from the start if you get into F1 off that sort of backbone. So I I think the whole thing is a bit unsustainable at the moment. I think the model will collapse in on itself, and that's a damn shame because it means that good drivers like Piastri will have to find another way, Um, which is a shame because to a degree, the system is working because it's produced brilliant talent in the last half decade. That's proof by what Formula One is now, but at the same time, it's also leaving a lot of people hung out to dry. So it's it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other in that sense. Um, can, can you fill us in on the Jamie Chadwick news that you sort of alluded to there? So uh, what's what's happened there with the W Series? Yeah, basically, um, she's had to come back for a third year, which uh, which raised the eyebrows for a lot of people. Um, long story short. In the W Series, if you come back, you've got to give up your Super License points that you earned from that series the previous year. So basically, the only thing Chadwick got from racing in the F- in the W Series last year was the half-million-dollar top prize for being champion, which is all right, but $500,000 is not going to cut it to get a Formula 3 seat. Like, it's... You need about a million euros now per year for a Formula 3 drive, and that's the problem. So it... The W Series came into motorsport claiming that they were going to produce Formula One's next female driver and that they were going to be a feeder series for, for for F1. They nestled on the bosom of Formula One's undercard, but yet has really struggled to get anybody up the ladder. Jamie Chadwick's been the star of that series. She's won that series twice but she's having to go back for a third year and she's openly admitted she hasn't got the funds to be able yeah. to climb that next step on the ladder. So it's it's made a lot of people like me sit here and go, well, what's the point? Um, you know, if you can't get super license points off it consistently and you can't get enough money to climb the ranks, then what's the point of the series? So it's, it's, it's going to make people sit there and go, hang on a minute, are we sure about this? <laughs> 
can point to Alice Powell as well and Emma Kimmelainen, who mm. um, are, are, are both drivers who've shown their mettle in other series as well. But uh, J- Jamie Chadwick has been the shining star of, star of that series. Um, she um, pre- pretty much dominated the first season, um, probably should have got a drive in uh, um traditional motorsport after that but uh, like like you say she didn't have the budget and i i think it's such a shame uh, particularly as she's actually signed to an f1 team's academy and yet you know that they apparently had a day and a half of testing to give to roy nissany but nothing to give to jamie chadwick i i i just found the way that she was um, not used by williams considering the profile that she could have got them for that and considering her obvious ability to be to be baffling really and uh, of course she's had involvements with formula e teams but that's never gone beyond the young drivers test and it's a shame it's a damn shame it's a damn shame unfortunately this is the model of modern day motorsport we need money to compete and unfortunately these series are not self-sufficient the the, the check's got to come from somewhere um and um, you know They've got these teams in place and you need the drivers to produce the funds to be able to take part in the series is always going to be a bit backwards um, in terms of logic. But this is how, this is the, the structure the sport has chosen for itself. I don't expect the FIA to start pouring out tens of millions of dollars a year to subsidize their junior ladder because the FIA doesn't make money. It, it, does, it runs at a loss. It has done forever. So someone's got to fill in the blank from somewhere and unfortunately that's that's not going to happen anytime soon so yeah unfortunately people like chadwick get left on the wayside i'm not saying that she was like a lando norris or george russell ever talent but even so it's still a shame that you know the leading figure i'd argue in you know for women in motorsport in, on the european ladder basically is on the brink of her single seater career being over because she's she really should be in Formula 3 by now. She's already 23. That's already, like, probably two years over par for F1 graduates these days. And she's still not even F3 yet. So she's not going to get a top-tier seat in Formula 2 or Formula 3 at her age and her relative lack of experience. So she's she's pushing a massive boulder up a mountain right now. And I'm not sure there's going to be an easy workaround for that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but uh, hope, hopefully, um, and I, I say this as a as a fan of the W Series idea. I, I I like I like the drivers that it's it's brought to the fore. Um, apart from Jamie Chadwick, I mean, uh, Jessica Hawkins, for example, has become an ambassador for Aston Martin now, and uh, there there are, there are plenty of talented people, uh, both both running and driving in that sport. Uh, and I I just I just want to see it do well, but. Um, yeah, uh, like 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 you, I'm I'm kind of feeling that it's 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 highlighting rather than breaking that glass ceiling in motorsport, if you like. Yeah, definitely, I definitely think that's the case. Um, a lot of people have been beating this drum for half a decade or more. I know King was very my my colleague King, which you've had on the show before, was been very vocal about this when it first came around. I was prepared to give the W series the benefit of the doubt, but it's not succeeded in it's one of its main mission aims and people have got every right to call them out on that. But yeah, I think it's point we care more about junior drivers now on social media than than ever before. Um so, you know, it's going to point more people in that direction about the ceilings that come within junior motorsport and 
yeah, you're going to need millions and millions of pounds before you even set foot in a Formula One seat to have any chance of making it. And unfortunately, it's a system that's been in place for decades and it's probably unlikely to change, unfortunately. All right, so uh, your, your final pick for the Formula E Dream Draft is um, either a powertrain supplier or a name to stick on the powertrain if you're buying an existing powertrain from another team. So really depends how dirty you want your team's hands to get in terms of building their own equipment um, and uh, how much you want to um, source and buy in and how proud you are about building your own stuff. Um, so who's your backer going to be for this? Williams. It has to be Williams, and I know they've already got a degree of of, of Formula E history on it, um, obviously because they they were the original battery makers. But I've always kind of been curious to see what they would do if they had their own powertrain to develop in that sense, and see what their interpretation of the rules could be and how they could improve the situation for them. So I'd like them to have a say in it, um, but maybe slap a Honda badge in front of it, like what Red Bull have been to or what Red Bull are basically doing now. So we'll, we'll call it Honda development, but really it's Williams, you know, I thought that'd be quite interesting because um I'd like to see how those two guys would, would come together and, and, and crack it because uh I'm a I'm not the biggest technical know how guy in the world, but I like how those two come together. I like how they've done business in Formula One before, and I'd love to see how they'd handle a, a Formula E powertrain. Great choice. Uh, of course, Williams Advanced Engineering are making the batteries for Formula E, but g- given that they, they had a tie-in with Jaguar during the Gen 2 era, um, and um, uh, they're, they're, they're coming in as the battery supplier for Gen 3, I, I don't see that as being a huge issue. And um, I... I also think that uh, you've you've got uh, you, you've got there a lot of expertise, uh, and they they have in the past gone for some quite quirky but uh, seemingly revolutionary um, problem solving measures in terms of design. So uh, back back in the um, you obviously remember this, but back in the first time when Formula One had Kurs, um, Williams decided to go the other way to everyone else, and they, they didn't ever race it, unfortunately, but they developed flywheel curves. Um, and mm. considering Jamie Rigel allegedly wants to take Formula E down a more... Um, um, it, it, down, down a more design independent route in terms of giving teams more leeway for, um, mm. for, for for different solutions. I wonder if we could see a return for flywheel. That, that could be fun. That could be very fun. I'd be certainly intrigued by that. Um, I mean, again, I think Formidary has very much had the restrictor plates when it comes to overall development in that sense. Um, I think they've been very cautious, for instance, when it comes to things like, you know, overall car development i mean they started out essentially spec and i think only in season two did they really start opening you know slowly opening up development for things like the the battery and the powertrain and we're still getting those battles now you know six years later um so i know they've always been a bit cautious when it comes to this so obviously you know i'm sure they'll be they'll keep that cautious approach but I think there's certainly things they could do that could be very interesting in seeing how this game develops because I mean we're still we're still barely scratching the surface when it comes to electric tech overall. I think there's still so much potential um, in it as an overall 
mode of transportation as an overall entity in terms of power and performance. I think it's incredible what they're doing. So um, I think there's a lot of potential in all of it, and I'd like to see where it would go, and I'd like to see what would, what happened if, you know, if uh, Formula E took the, took the shackles off to a degree. But, uh, yeah, I think I think it would be certainly be fun. Also, interesting chemistry here because you mentioned that that possibly this Win- this Williams powertrain could be badged as a Honda, and of course this is Ross Braun's return to Honda. Well, he- he's fantastic at dealing with dealing with the Japanese executives. I I think he'd enjoy that actually. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of motorsport. Being able, if you're gonna have another continent manufacturer work with you, that communication and what you need for success, I think, is a huge part of that. I think. Livio Sippo did that brilliantly at Honda when he was at Repsol Honda as their boss and the talent that he had with Pedrosa and Davizioso and Casey Stoner and then later on Mark Marquez towards the end of his time at Honda. He's now back with Suzuki this year emerging. That's going to be very intriguing. Um, so, yeah, I think having that communication barrier in the middle, I think is hugely important. Definitely. Uh, j- just one thing though, would would you call the team uh, Honda E, which is the name of the car, or would would you would you go for the Street Fighter gag and call it E Honda? <laughs> oh, the temptation to call it E Honda would be so good, wouldn't it? Um, I'd <laughs> probably play it safe and go Honda E, but uh, oh, that that would be such a tempting option, wouldn't it? <laughs> certainly would, certainly would. Um, so we've we've got your Formula E Dream Draft team here. Um, the team figurehead will be Marcus Rashford. Uh, the team principal, uh, keeping things together, Ross Braun. Uh, chief engineer Luigi Deligna. Uh, yep. The the driver partnership Jensen Button and Joseph Newgarden. Test driver Oscar Piastri and powertrain supplier um, Williams Advanced Engineering with a Honda badge. Sounds like a dream combination to me. Um, how do you think it would do in its first season against uh, the likes of Porsche, for example? Yeah, like there's a lot of powerhouses in Formula E now, most definitely. Um I'd be very curious to see how we stack up against them. But I, I like my team. I like how it's set up. I think there's a lot of very intelligent people, a lot of guys who know it. I think we'd be very popular. I think we'd sell a lot of T-shirts. Um, <laughs> and I see how we go from there. But I, I say this in total respect to Formula Reen, the people within it. It's an incredible series with a lot of incredible talent in, within it, you know, in, you know, in the cars and outside. So it would be a challenge, but it's one that I think we'd certainly relish. All right, excellent stuff. Dre Harrison from Motorsport 101 and author of The Kick, thank you so much for being my first guest on the Motion E Podcast's new format, um, the Formula E Dream Draft. And um, you can join us for more podcast action um, very soon. Thank you very much.